From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. In case the calendar officially declaring the arrival of spring isn't enough to convince you the season is here, the return of Rainsville should do the trick. With baseball and softball both changing schedules on the fly to accommodate torrential downpours. On today's show, we'll welcome FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry to discuss baseball and softball opening conference play, a familiar face joining the football coaching staff, the state of men's basketball entering the offseason, women's hoops rolling in the WNIT, gymnastics claiming another SEC crown, and the fairness of March Madness in the PAT. Then, baseball's breakout star Jack Caglione stops by to share the keys to his meteoric rise, overcoming the adversity of Tommy John's surgery, and the big league parks where he would relish the chance to take batting practice. But first, it's time for the Gator Roundtable, presented by Pet Paradise. Pet Paradise is your complete pet health care destination, with resort-style day camp, overnight boarding, professional grooming, and compassionate veterinary care from New Day, all located under one roof to serve pet fanatics like you. Book today at PetParadise.com, the official pet care provider of the Florida Gators. It is roundtable time, and we've got the old crew is here. It's FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry. A plethora of things to talk about. Let's start with baseball. And, uh, you know, midweeks tend to not be that interesting for most of the year. Uh, but this week was one of the midweeks that, that does make people pay attention. That was Florida, Florida State, the first meeting of the year in Tallahassee. Uh, and, Scott, as has been the case a lot in the last, I don't know, seven, eight years. Uh, Florida won again, 20 out of 24, as they've really, uh, really taken a hold of this rivalry. Yeah, the uh, Florida Florida State midweek is, like you said, a little different than the others, and uh, people, interest is at a high. And last night, or on a Tuesday night over in Tallahassee, the Gators, you know, it was a back and forth game. They got down late, or they got down in middle innings, and they came back late, won at nine to five. And it's kind of typical of what we've seen from this Florida team. Uh, you know, it's one of those seasons, Adam, I think, where, you know, if they're down 4-1, 6-2 early in the game, not a lot of reason to fret if you're a Gator fan because this team is averaging 10 runs a game. They came through with nine at Florida State and um, just uh, another nice win. I think it's seven out of eight overall. They coming off the uh, weekend series over Alabama in the SEC. They opened there. Uh, at Condren Ballpark, but taking two out of three over the Crimson Tide. And then they moved up to number three in the polls this week. And, of course, they uh, they topped that off with a win at Florida State. And it's kind of a, on the road uh, this week, Adam. They go from Tallahassee. They'll be in Oxford this weekend against uh, reigning national champion Ole Miss. So uh, it never gets easier in the SEC, as we know. But, again, um, They've done really well without uh, Wyatt Lankford, the the All-American. You know, I think they've won now seven of eight since he's been sidelined with that foul ball. But Kevin O'Sullivan said uh, after the Alabama series to look for him back sooner than later. And, uh, you know, you get him back in the lineup, 
Josh Revere is playing his best uh, ball of his career to shortstop. He's a guy that came back after not getting drafted last summer, kind of a subpar year. And with what he's doing now, uh, I was talking to a scout at last weekend's game who I bumped into, and uh, he's like, this guy's working himself way up into the draft right now. So he's having a great season. So it's all going to be just whether or not they can keep him healthy because, you know, they've done well with that length. But I think the one player in the lineup and in defensively who they can't lose would be Rivera. And uh, the pitching is going to be there. So we'll see. It's it's I think, as we've said before, I'll keep saying it, unless somebody really – Unless they go into tank, I really expect this team to challenge hard uh, to return to Omaha. Another note that I thought was was interesting was uh, Jack Caglione, who actually went over uh, over the weekend against Alabama. I think his, his batting average dropped like sixty points. Um, he goes four for five in Tallahassee. So yeah, midweeks can be good sometimes. So you don't have the weekend you want. You got a quick quick little pick me up in Tallahassee for him. Yeah, I mean, the Caglione's had an unbelievable season at the plate uh, and on the mound. And, you know, you're right. He went 0 for 11 in the Alabama series. Ty Evans, the right fielder, went 0 for 9. So that's your number, what, three and six hitters going for a combined 0 for 20. And you know that's not going to last long with Caglione, the kind of season he's having. So he got back on track in Tallahassee. And, you know, I was just talking about how good Josh Rivera has been. I mean, the best two-way player in the country for the first month of the seasons, clearly Jack Caglione. And uh, if he continues at this pace, he's going to be a strong candidate for national player of the year, probably, but a lot of season to go. I mean, it's going to get tougher with the SEC schedule, uh, but Caglione is just a special talent in my view. And good thing is he's only a sophomore. So they got him for at least one more year. From one diamond to the other, also an update what's going on with softball. Uh, they had their first SEC series this past weekend and really had to, to battle it out with Missouri. Took two of three, ultimately. Uh, and now coming up, Chris, they're going to Arkansas, a place that didn't used to be hard to go to. But again, college sports, like most, are pretty cyclical. And teams that are bad often, at some point, become pretty good. Yeah, lost the first game to Missouri in their uh, in their SEC opener, then came back and uh, won the next two, including the first walk off uh, win of the season. And it was like your typical, it's kind of what you've seen from Florida the last few years. One of those uh, uh, small ball kind of things. They're down a run, they get a they get a base hit, and then a, a, a field of choice to second base, and maybe a stolen base, and then a or a sacrifice to third. And I think. Ultimately, Skylar Wallace ended up uh, scoring uh, the winning run uh, in the Missouri series uh, on, a, on a wild pitch. Um, she was named the SEC Player of the Week. I think she was 6 of 11 at the plate. She's having an outstanding season to date. And, yeah, good little springboard for them to, to, uh, to get started. Because I, I, I do remember, wasn't Arkansas, weren't they owing something in the league a couple years ago? I want to say they had multiple years where they didn't win a they single lost 20 SEC games. game. They, yeah, they lost twenty games in yeah. the, in conference play for you, and then they did a overhaul of their program. They they built a really really pretty uh, stadium there, and last year they came to Gainesville for the SEC uh, tournament and won the damn thing. So uh, they they that this will be a good little series uh, for the Gators this weekend. Obviously, show if Arkansas's got its staying power. Um, probably does. Uh, you know, but Florida, Florida will go there with, a, you know, obviously with with a chance to uh, with a chance to win that series and obviously, you know, make some hay er, early in the SEC season. I, and I emphasize that it's early in the SEC. This is only the second series of the year. 
So it's early for uh, for softball and for baseball. It's very late for basketball. In fact, it's over for basketball. Uh, and Chris, I want to want to talk about kind of putting a wrap on this past season. Um, not the ending that that they were hoping for in the NIT, a, a quick exit and a, a pretty thorough beating by UCF. And then after that, uh, the transfer portal stuff starts to happen. So I think as a lot of people expected after this transitional year, there was going to be a lot of change. Um, your thoughts on the way that this season ended and where it's going now in the future? Yeah, it wasn't the ending that they wanted. It wasn't the beginning or the middle. Uh, 16 and 17 final record. First losing season uh, for this program since, uh, excuse me, 2014 and 15 and only the second of the century. So um, obviously there's a lot of work to do. And uh, when you see what happened as soon as the season ends, there was already four four Florida names in the transfer portal. Uh, I anticipate more, actually. Um, uh, let me put it this way. If there's not more, I'll be surprised. Um, at at roll-in, um, three fifth-year seniors exiting. So you're talking about uh, an overhaul of seven players which, at minimum, which is uh, obviously more than half the team. So uh, Todd Golden is kind of where he, where he was a year ago. But he also has a much better understanding of, of how things are going, how things are here, uh, the landscape of the Southeastern Conference, um, the situation within within his program. And I, I imagine as as analytically based as he is and, and, and how smart he is and how smart his staff is, um, they have a different plan this year uh, in terms of how how they're going to how they're going to rebuild this team. Um you know, I, I I could sit here and throw a bunch of names at you, but I'm not but I'm not going to do that because it would it would be fruitless. I mean, there's I mean, what is it? Twelve hundred players I think in a portal now. More are coming after uh, this weekend, no doubt. Uh, there's there's some players that are on their third and fourth chance. I just saw the other. I just saw Quez Glover is in the is in the transfer portal after he transferred from Florida to San Sanford. He's back in there. So there's so, so there's a name Gator fans will remember. Quez Glover is still in college. <laughs> Quez Glover is still in college. Yes, it's like Drew yeah. Timmy is somehow still in college. Well, I tell you what, uh, the watching Tennessee last week, and and obviously Santiago Vescovi is a really really good player. He's been a great point guard for ten. He's got another year left, by the way. Mm. And he just he's one of those guys that seems like I remember uh, Kentucky fans used to say Chris Chioza <laughs> is never going to graduate or something, and and they and that was before COVID when you he was only here four years and played. And that Kentucky fans used to say that that's because a senior to them would be like seeing Bigfoot. Right. You know, back, back then they, they didn't even know what a senior looked like, but now literally you have guys that uh, it's not unusual. When I start looking at these guys in the transfer portal, I look at these names that pop in there and they got 16, 1700 points for their career already and have another year left to try to, you know, go to 2200 or whatever. The way I see this playing out uh, in terms of this rebuild, rebuild, obviously, they need rebounding and they need shooting. Okay, so uh, those were those were uh, weaknesses for this for this team this past season. Last year, before the year even started, <clears throat> excuse me, Todd Golden said the things that he inherited from the team before that he wanted to improve on were three point shooting, uh, uh, defensive rebounding, and ball security. They were really good with ball security until the UCF game, by the way. Gators were seemed to be suffering a case of I call it nititis uh, that showed up. Um, that tends to that's 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 not particularly unusual. But uh, uh, only one of those three boxes was checked. And now when you're doing a whole overhaul, now you're bringing in new guys. There's no guarantee that 
uh, as good as Kyle Lofton was last year, taking care of the ball, whoever the new point guard is, you know, they're going to have to start over with this stuff. So um, they're going to want to beef up the front court, especially with some toughness. Uh, they got two incoming freshmen that they think are going to be good program guys. Alex Condon, a 6'11 uh, kid from uh, Australia who's going to sign later this month, or excuse me, next month. And Thomas Hawk, uh, a, 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 kid from the, a kid from the Northeast. Same kind of same kind of blueprint. One six eleven, one six nine. So that's a good young base from which to start. But now they got to add a bunch of veterans around them. And, and I, I, like I said, this is this time last year. Todd Golden was diving in a transfer portal, looking to rebuild a team. He's basically doing the same thing again. A lot of activity expected over at the basketball complex. Uh, no doubt, we'll keep tabs on that. Uh, speaking of the team on the other side of that basketball complex, women's basketball is in the NIT as well, but has made a, a deeper run than men. They've won two games and have set up a very, very compelling third-round matchup with a familiar face, to say the least. You know, here, here comes here comes this game against uh, uh, Amanda Butler, uh, the former Florida coach, and her Clemson Tigers road game uh, Thursday night. I thought, you know, if they were able to win this, they would go to the to the uh, final four of the NIT. But then I remembered, I go, hell, they got two more games to do that because the WNIT field is now 60, 64 teams. So they, they still got some work to do to, to get to that final four. But, you know, I, I mentioned NIT-itis. Uh, the, the, the men had it, the women have it. They beat, they beat Wofford at home. They go up to Wake Forest and played one of their better games of the year. They didn't turn the ball over. They shot 20, 12 or 25, I think, from the three-point line. Um, Kelly Ray's team is to be is to be commended for, you know, keeping keeping the focus. Because uh, it's it's easy when, you know, you turn on your TV and you're seeing all these uh, NCAA tournament highlights to kind of get lost in those a little bit and to start thinking about your, your situation. But that hadn't been the case with this team. And, um they had to bus to Wake Forest. Wow. <laughs> Believe it or not, yeah, they bus ten hours up there. Now they and they bus to Clemson for this game, and they have a way of of kind of uh, uniting with their camaraderie a little bit. Uh, that the women's team, so they spent a lot of time with each other um, the last uh, few days. So uh, let's see how that let's see how they fare against against an old friend. And uh, obviously, Amanda Butler uh, was a fixture in the Florida basketball program for a long, long time. One of Really, really good player for Carol Ross and here for seven years and took that team to a few NCAA tournaments when she was here. Let's finish our uh, our main portion here with some football talk. Again, they remain in the in the throes of spring practice. Scott, not a ton of news coming out of camp in the last week, but we always like to check in just to see what's happening. Uh, what's the latest going on over at, uh, at, at spring football? Well, they resumed practice uh, on Monday after spring break, so everybody got back. I'm sorry, on Tuesday. Uh, after spring break, they got back into the flow on the field. And uh, on Monday night, Billy Napier kicked off his uh, annual spring speaking tour with the stop down in Melbourne with the Space Coast Skater Club. I made the trip down there. And, you know, a lot of it really was uh, explaining to the audience where where the program is going into year two. And, you know, Billy was certainly uh, talked about the big picture plan that he brought to Florida. And he said that, you know, they've altered some things. They learned a lot in their first year. But ultimately, you know, he still is very confident in what they're doing uh, in terms of approach and uh, just building these players, not only onto the field, but just some of the stuff that they're doing off the field that you don't really see a lot in the game. And um, 
And also, there was a lot of NIL talk. I mean, so many fans are still trying to kind of grasp what this is. And obviously, everybody is still trying to grasp where it's going and how, what kind of impact it's going to have long term. And I don't think we really know those answers yet until there's some kind of defined regulations in that space. But they're working the best they can with the, you know, the, the situation as we know. And I think it, part of his uh, his message to the uh, the crowd was really an education form on NIL and how that has changed the landscape in a year and a half since it's been into play. And obviously, some fans had questions about Florida's NIL approach. Uh, had questions about what this does mean for you know five years down the road, and uh, it, it was so he he talked about that quite a bit. Uh, but ultimately, you can tell that I thought the most important thing that probably most fans will take of that. He says, "Look, we're in a lot better place personnel wise right today than a year ago." He talked about the twenty seven mid year enrollees in practice. That's unheard of to have that many. 17 true freshmen, 10 transfer guys. And you can tell he likes the talent upgrade there. He he says, you know, if you take that, they had, they had a top 10 nationally ranked class with the freshmen. But if you take the 10 transfers, he says the ranking would be even higher. They did a lot of evaluations on it. So, I mean, he's very confident. You know, he's confident in the quarterback position with Graham Mertz and Jack Miller. Uh, so, I, I just took away from it, you know, although – he took some heat in year one. They finished six and seven on the field. He said, look, I go to, you know, he said this publicly to the, to the media, local media that, you know, I, I that was a disappointing season in my book. But, I, you know, he's losing some sleep every time he goes to bed at night thinking about how they can get better. And he says they've already done that significantly since the end of last season. So that was the message there. He's got another one of those on March 29th down in Polk County. He spread them out a little bit more this year. So I think he's going to be doing these through May. Uh, and then um, otherwise, you know, it's it's that part of spring camp where, you know, you're, you're starting to think about the spring game a little bit and getting to see a lot of these guys for the first time. So that's coming up uh, mid next month. So uh, we're, we're kind of headed toward that right now. That's really the, the main thing going on in football right now. And I would be remiss to add if a, a, a familiar face is back in Billy Gonzalez, uh, the receivers coach who uh, he was out there yesterday, his first practice. Uh, you know, I don't I don't think our fans need a lot of introduction to Billy Gonzalez. This is his third stint at Florida. Uh, he was here with Urban Meyer in the heyday of the late 2000s. And then, of course, he returned with Mullen uh, for four years. And I look at his – the Gators receivers, when you look at that unit as a whole in their best years since really Urban Meyer's tenure – their bet the receiving core's best years really came when Billy Gonzalez was the uh, receivers coach. You got to remember off of that what they had: Freddie Swain, Trayvon Grimes, uh, Josh Hammond, oh Tyree Cleveland, Van Jefferson, and also probably the most notable one right now, considering what he just did in the Super Bowl, Kadarius Tony. So and he worked a lot with Kadarius Tony uh, on becoming a receiver. Remember, he came here as a running back. So. Uh, and if you noticed on social media, every one of those guys, when they saw that Billy Gonzalez was back, every one of those guys gave him a big plug on social media. So uh, that probably tells you all you need to know about what what the players think of him. And uh, and uh, Napier, glad to have him back, as he told the crowd uh, down in uh, Melbourne on Monday.
there's so much to hit this week and how late in the proceedings this is. We haven't even talked about gymnastics yet, uh, but gymnastics, we talked about last week, they were going to the SEC championship meet and they won it in a runaway, uh, which is really impressive considering how many great teams come from the SEC. But, you know, Scott, we talk about this all the time with gymnastics every year. It's all about, well, are you healthy at the right time? Are you peaking at the right time? Last year, they weren't healthy. They weren't peaking at this time of year. At the moment, at the moment, it seems that they are. Yeah, they've really done a good job with, I think, roster management this year in terms of when to go. I know, you know, in their loss at Oklahoma uh, a couple of weeks ago, a lot of fans were like, well, Obviously, we're not as good as Oklahoma. What are they doing not using Trinity Thomas on the floor and so-and-so here and there? Well, that, that was the plan. That was by design because they want to be peaking at the right time. They want to be as healthy as they can. And so far, a uh, good fortune is smile on the Gators. Uh, and then how about Trinity Thomas at the SEC? I mean, she just, in her final SEC championship, she stole the show. She was the all-around champion, got a 10 on the uneven bars, closed the meet with the 10 on floor, gives her 27 perfect scores now in her career, just one shy of the NCAA record with, you know, most likely two more meets to go, being the regional and the NCAA finals. And so they're right on schedule to where they want to be, where Jenny Rowland has kind of pointed them all season. And uh, it's going to be tough because, you know, if they get out to uh, to Fort Worth uh, in April and, you know, you're in that final four, you're going to have Oklahoma there barring a major surprise. But uh, it's it's going to be one of those showdowns, I think, for college uh, gymnastics enthusiasts. It's one of those matchups that everyone has anticipated all season. And it's it's headed that way right now. And as you said in your intro there, uh, I mean, this has been the plan. It's all about peaking and staying healthy basically in the postseason and uh, Florida showed just how, I guess, prime they are for a run with their performance at the SEC because uh, that was, uh, you know, after winning the regular season SEC, they followed up in impressive fashion at the SEC championships. And this is a team that's talked about having four championships all year, the regular season and postseason SEC, a regional title, and then, of course, the big one, the NCAA final. So two of four down, and now we get to see uh, – how they play it out in crunch time. Yeah, so a little bit of a break before they get to the regional, and then there's a two-week break after that. So it's uh, it, it's not imminent. The national championship meet is not imminent, but it is very, very close around the corner. Uh, I want to turn our attention now to the PAT. It's about March Madness. I think it's a safe thing to say that everybody loves March Madness. If you don't love March Madness, uh, you're either the head of HR, I guess, or you're, uh, you're someone who doesn't really enjoy sports. But if you do love March <coughs> Madness, which we all do, uh, you fully recognize what makes it so exciting and why we love it. But I was having this conversation with someone a few days ago. I think the question that's fair to ask is, is this the best way to determine a national champion? Is Fairleigh Dickinson really better than Purdue? I don't think anybody believes that. They were for one moment in time, and therefore Purdue is out just like that. Um, but there's so many examples with these crazy upsets where teams that I think you would argue are not better than the team they beat. But that's how the term works. It's one and done. It's random. It's chaos. Uh, and oftentimes we end up with a national champion who was mostly, I don't want to say mostly irrelevant, but not at all one of the best teams throughout the year during the regular season. So my question is, 
Is this tournament the best and fairest way to determine a national champion? Yes or no? I mean, last year, Kansas was Kansas won the national championship. Baylor won the national championship. They were great. They were number one, like half this. Um, you know, Gonzaga is always in the conversation. First of all, that what makes it great is the, like the stuff you, it's, it's the, it's the one and done nature of it. And the, and, and the, and the pressure that, uh, yes, if fairly Dickinson and Purdue played a hundred times, Purdue would win 99 of them. This was, this was their night. That's what, that's why we watch it. It wouldn't, they've talked about how to change it. What by making it 96 teams or something like that. The only way to change it, to make it the way you want it to make it fair would be to play, you know, two out of threes or three out of fives, and they'd be playing basketball. First of all, they, they'd have to cut the – they cut it from 64 teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wouldn't be 64 anymore, and you wouldn't have Fairleigh Dickinson in the NCAA tournament anymore. Um, half of the – the what makes what makes this time of year and, and that event so cool is the, is the fact you have stories like uh, Oral Roberts, you have stories like Furman, you have – you have those teams that, that come out of uh, nowhere, uh, Maryland, Baltimore County. People never even heard of, and all of a sudden you're paying attention to them. Um, to get rid of that, you know, would would two out of threes make uh, bring about a more conventional or uh, kind of uh, national champ nas- national champion, or or maybe a more likely national champion? Uh, probably so, but it wouldn't wouldn't be near as endearing as is what we see when we gather at, you know, the local Beefo Brady's or whatever to watch a, a 12-5 seed game or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to echo a lot of what Chris just said. I mean, I think, to me, what makes March Madness mad, you know, is the fact that a 16 seed like Fairleigh Dickinson can knock off a uh, number one Purdue with the national player of the year. And it creates, uh, it creates interest and drama right off the bat for the whole tournament. And now you're starting to think, all right, who else is going to do it? You know, you see Princeton win and you see some other upsets and you got Florida Atlantic in the sweet 16. And uh, so, you know, I, I think if there's one thing in sports that really is kind of perfect, even though maybe you're saying it's imperfect, I think it is this uh, the March Madness. I mean, it's one of the two or three best sporting events I think that exist. And yeah, the, the winner – for the most part, is usually someone that you know it usually evens itself out after those upsets, as we saw with Florida uh, Atlantic being fairly Dickinson, and now can Florida Atlantic keep it going against a another tough opponent? So, by the end of the final four, oftentimes the t- teams there are usually ones that you could envision there when the tournament started. Once in a while, we have one of those shockers, you know, like what was it St. Peter's last year? St. Peter's made it to the Elite Eight last year. Okay, so you get those, but again, to me, that's what makes it so exciting throughout the three weeks that the tournament runs. And, uh, you know, it, I think if you look at what the one format of postseason that to me is the most unfair of any of the sports is the the wild card playoff game in baseball, because that's that sport, you know, one game, you know, one game. Well, it's two or three now. They, they did change that. So they've made some advancement there. But I remember one year. I mean, we've seen it happen. I remember one year, '98 win Pirates team lost the uh, the wild card playoff back in I think '15, and it was like, man, that's just you win '98 games in the regular season, and you just get one game to really get into the playoffs. So I'm glad they have changed that to make it a little a little more fair. But uh, I don't know, Adam. I, I just think, I, like I said, March Madness uh, 
it, it's it's almost perfect in my view because that's why it's so popular. I mean, that's why it has the reputation it does. But you know, I also you know I like chocolate. A lot of people don't. So. <laughs> if the, if Division One was ever to contract like you hear and make it just a uh, you know Power Five, Power Six. Uh, uh, conference, one big one or something like that. And then all these other smaller schools, mid-majors, low-majors were out of the equation. And maybe they would change something like that uh, to a to a series kind of thing. But, I mean, it, it, that would suck. That's, yeah. that, that wouldn't have any of the um, magic that, that this particular tournament has. I have an interesting stat, by the way, of the 16 teams left. Florida played seven of them this year. Wow. Which is yeah. – and 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 one of them, an eighth, was Miami, and they played them in a secret scrimmage. So uh, the Gator, the Gators got a good dose of the teams that ended up there. Some of the last teams standing this season. Yeah, that's interesting. And just to know, I don't want don't don't make me uh, screwed here. I don't want to change the tournament. I love the tournament. I'm just the guy that asked the questions. I just asking, yeah. is it fair? I'm not saying, I'm not saying we should change it. I'm just asking, is it a fair way? Well, to determine the national champion in the sport. As my dad often told me when I was a younger guy, so life's not fair. It's not fair. <laughs> so I, I just I've accepted that and moved on. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great that's a great way to end. It's an optimistic note to end our podcast on. Life's not fair. Isn't isn't that the isn't that the first line of the of the Lion King? Life's not fair. Life's it, not fair. Whereas I I will never be king, and you'll never see the light of another day again. <laughs> oh, I'm impressed here, Chris, pulling it out, man. Jeremy, Jer- Jeremy Irons a scar, right? I would love to see Adam and Chris go to watch the Iron King. To, or the, the, the Iron King. The Iron King. Uh, <laughs> what is it called? Lion the Lion King. King. The Lion King together, and you all could have a podcast about uh, it. Yeah. Um, again, places I didn't think this would end. Chris doing an impression of Jeremy Irons and reenacting a scene where he tortures and murders a mouse. A bird. Um, Or is it a mouse? It is a mouse. I think it's a mouse. It's a mouse. I'm just glad it wasn't a cat, guys. (laughs) Ask anyone in college baseball who's been the star of the first month of the season, and they will all likely have the same answer. A true sophomore, Jack Caglione has been on an absolute tear both at the plate and on the mound, proving to be the most prolific two-way player in the nation. Before the squad hit the road for Oxford in a date with the national champs, we spoke to Cags about his story and the team's latest conquest of Florida State. It's great. I mean, you know, going in to Tallahassee, you know, we had uh, one there. I mean, Josh was saying that you know, he had it one at FSU at his whole time at UF. So, wow. you know, going into that game, you know, we had a game plan. All the guys were pretty pumped. We've been playing great baseball all season. We kind of battled back and forth going in, you know, going down 5-1. Definitely was kind of like a low blow. We were like, uh, but the way that we've been playing, honestly, it's it was kind of – we've done a lot better this year than we have last year uh, playing from behind. Mm-hmm. So going in there and – you know, scratching out that five-run eighth inning, eighth or seven, I think it was eighth. Um, you know, that was huge. It was great for our morale, especially going into this weekend against Ole Miss. So having that mindset of, you know, you've come back from multiple deficits, you know you can score runs in bunches. What is What do you attribute that to? Is that just – is that confidence? Is that just seeing the results and knowing what you guys are capable of? Like, where does that mindset come from? Honestly, just knowing that each person in the lineup – you know, they have your back. Um, if one person, you know, 
doesn't get a knock or something like that. There are eight other guys that can do that just fine. There have been plenty of times, you know, I'll pop up or something, and then Josh will come in and hit a three-run bomb to pick me up right there. So um, kind of we just have a bunch of confidence in each other, and that's probably the biggest thing. So this past weekend, you've had a ridiculous season so far, but you went hitless against Alabama. Then you come out and you go four for five against FSU. Is this like a is this like a, a Bruce Banner Hulk thing? Like you won't like me when I'm angry, and they made you angry? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, Alabama definitely didn't go the way I wanted to at the plate, but you know, at the end of the day, we won the series. You know, it's kind of just baseball. You got to roll the punches yep. sometimes. You know, you're not gonna you're not gonna go two for three or one for three every game. So it's kind of just focusing on what's important now. Is that is it an O for weekend against Alabama? Does that count as adversity for you? Like, did you did you feel it a little bit because of the tear that you've been on, and and that maybe changed something in your approach when you went to Tallahassee? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Alabama had great arms out of the pen. I mean, there's no discredit to them. They're a great team. But yeah, definitely, I've been seeing the ball well and going into that weekend. You know, striking out a few times. You know, getting some weak contact and stuff like that. I was kind of, you know. Went back to the basics at practice, really just during BP, kind of focusing on staying through the middle. Yeah, working through that at practice with Chuck and stuff like that really helped me for this yesterday and hopefully leading into this weekend. And we'll talk more about this weekend in in a few minutes, but I want to roll things back a little bit here, take you all the way to the beginning. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about your family, where you grew up, your parents, your siblings, all all the good early details? My dad grew up in South Florida. Pembroke Pines. He uh, played baseball at Stetson for a couple years where he went to law school. Um, My mom was a big basketball player. She was born in Puerto Rico, moved to New Jersey, and then settled down in Tampa, met my dad. And one thing, you know, now I'm here. But um, (laughs) it's not that kind of podcast. It's. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then uh, then my sister, um, she was a big volleyball player in high school. She actually played at Santa Fe her freshman year during COVID. And then now she decided to transfer to FSU for, as a student, uh, she had a bunch of friends and stuff there, but my dad got me into baseball when I was about three, four years old, went through the whole little league T-ball deal. After that, you know, got introduced to like travel ball around eight years old Mm -hmm. and kept on playing through the circuit. And then I was noticed by Florida, my freshman year, uh, went and toured, when they played Vandy at home. But unfortunately, it was a rain delay, so obviously we didn't get to see him play, but it was all right. That, that's a pretty accurate depiction of a, of a Gator baseball weekend, though, is it not? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, got to check out Old McKeithen, which is really nice. You know, when I was touring there, they were telling me about the whole new stadium, and I thought, like, oh, sweet. It's so, like my first year will be kind of – it'll be the first year. It was the second year of the stadium, but mm. it was pretty cool. Um Torn Gainesville just kind of felt like home. It felt like a place like two hours away from home, great school, definitely a place that I wanted to go to. And then my sophomore year, finally got the offer and committed, I think, the next day. Wow. I was pretty dead set on Florida. I knew that this was the best place for me to develop my skills and, you know, get the best opportunity at moving on to the next level. So going back a little bit, when when you started out, did you immediately take to the game? Like, did was it... Was it easy? Did it just work or or did it not work initially? And then you had to sort of fight through it. I mean, I don't want to toot my own horn, but growing Do up, it. I, was Do it. <laughs> I was definitely a little bit advanced on the baseball side of things. Okay. So it, was dad, easy. it came easy. Yeah. 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 I mean, my dad, 
like baseball has been like the biggest thing in our house growing up, you know, mm. grew up watching the Rays play, going to Rays games and doing all the spring training stuff with the Yankees and all that. But definitely when we got out of like coach pitch in little league and I started pitching, I was like, okay. And I was actually pitching pretty well. So I was like, okay, like I like this. I tried, mm. you know, soccer, basketball, wanted to try football, but my parents wouldn't let me, but <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, baseball was definitely just like the biggest thing ever since like I could comprehend becoming mm-hmm. a major league baseball player or playing, you know, at the D one level. That's like all that I wanted to do. Yeah. I feel like a lot of kids want to do that. Right. But a very select number actually can. Do you remember, was there a moment, was there like a stretch where you said, Oh, this is a dream that I have. And I think it's realistic or I know that I can get there because of X, Y, and Z that, that happened. Honestly, it was probably my freshman year of high school. We were taking BP, and I was, like, the only freshman that was hitting balls, like, far enough to get them out. Mm. Um, honestly, the Vila wasn't even always there. Freshman year, I think I topped, like, 83 or something like that. Mm. So I wasn't one of those dudes who, you know, were the extremely high follows going into high school, throwing upper 80s, low 90s. But I would say, like, I thought I was going to be in college to be a hitter just because I had, like, that power. And then as the years went on and everything, especially even post Tommy John, the Velas just kept increasing. You went to plant in Tampa, which has a pretty rich history across, I mean, all sports, but especially baseball. We're talking about Pete Alonzo, Preston Tucker. Uh, have you have you been connected at all with some of these uh, these Gator greats that you share even more in common with than, than where you play right now? Oh, yeah. I talked to Pete a decent amount. In fact, in the fall, I just went to his little home run derby fundraiser. Oh, cool. Uh, it was it was good because all the guys like Kyle Tucker, Connor Scott, Givens, all those type of guys were there. And, you know, it was good to see everyone. I hit with Pete when he would come in the offseason in high school. So, you know, I got to pick his mind before I even got to Gainesville. And I talked to Kyle. I trained with Kyle in the off seasons and stuff like that. So it's it's a pretty cool bond, especially to know that all those guys came from like my high school. I guess mm-hmm. like we all have that in common. But I don't know. It's a different feeling when you're watching them play in the big leagues and you're like, okay, I'm kind of trekking on their footsteps. So like, yeah. I'm building up to that, hopefully. Yeah. What is, uh, what's your relationship with Pete like today? Do you still get to to keep in touch with him or talk to him at all? Yeah. Every once in a while, we'll share texts. He's been pretty busy lately. Last time I <laughs> talked to him was at the Homer and Derby thing. But yeah, I mean, he's all, he's a great dude. He's always somebody that's down for a conversation, especially you know, giving tips about Sully, mm-hmm. uh, how to navigate Florida <laughs> baseball and do all that. So, <laughs> listen, every little bit helps, right? Every little bit yeah, helps. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so, when you got on campus, what do you remember about getting started? Who took you under their wing? Like, who got you feeling comfortable once you arrived at, at Florida? Uh, probably Hunter Barco. Um, kind of from Jump Street, me and him were like, we kind of clicked off the bat. You know, both left-handed pitchers, he would kind of, you know, help me through things, especially when I wasn't playing. You know, not the main focus, just because I was rehabbing. You know, they had to worry about the guys who were going to be contributing that year and stuff like mm-hmm. that. But he always made sure, you know, I was kind of included with everything and staying in the loop and teach me, like, tips and tricks for when I was able to play. So you mentioned a moment ago having Tommy John surgery, and that's before you even got to college. So... 
how big of a blow was that and and what got you through that because that's the kind of thing for a lot of people that can be kind of devastating um especially later in their career but now more and more guys are having that very early as, as you did as well yeah so i got it two weeks before we got to campus summer wow. b i was still in like the little soft cast deal had to go with the athletic trainer to go, go to shans to get the stitches out stuff like that so I did my whole recovery in Gainesville and some in Tampa during the breaks and stuff, but it stunk, honestly, kind of going into college thinking that you had all these big dreams to pitch, to mm-hmm. hit, to do all that, make a statement. And it kind of felt like it was taken away, like before you could even do anything. So it was a low blow for sure. But definitely once I got cleared to hit and then Sully comes up to me and says that he wants me to DH. And I was kind of like, Really? <laughs> like, I haven't seen a lot of pitching since, since high school, but I mean, if you want me to, like, yeah, it took it took some time to talk to my family, kind of decide whether or not to pull the red shirt just in case, like, it doesn't go well, it doesn't go as planned. But I felt comfortable, and I kind of bet on myself, and it ended up working out pretty well in the end. Mentally, how did you get through that? Because you talked about your expectations, what you were hoping to do. Was that the was that the hardest part? I know physically, you know, you got to do PT, whatever. That's kind of they've got a regiment for that. That's pretty, I'm sure, standardized. But mentally, I feel like everyone probably has their own journey getting through that, right? Yeah, I mean, it was definitely it was exciting to watch all my friends contribute freshman year, but it stunk like watching from the sidelines. You know, I tried you know cheer as loud as I could, like be there for my teammates and stuff like that. But I wanted nothing more than to be on that field and share like the glory that they were kind of going through, you know, right when it happened, it was kind of just like a shock. Cause I never really dealt with any major injury like that before. And doctors like, yeah, it's 12 to 16 months to recover. Um, freshman year is probably like a no go. And I was like, Oh wow. Like I'm just kind of there this year. Mm-hmm. And you go from being in high school when you're like the dude or whatever to having all the people in the stands be like, oh, it's a big dude. wonder yeah. why he doesn't play, you know? <laughs> What's that guy doing here? <laughs> exactly. Um, so when when you did start throwing again, were you were you tentative? Were you ready to just go all out? Like, how did you ease back into that uh, to the point now, obviously, where you're, you're pretty much going full speed? I was really cautious. Um, I mean, hadn't dealt with anything like that before, so I didn't really know, like, the first day of throws – I think I probably threw the ball like 30 miles an hour, barely <laughs> like used my arm, just kind of lobbed it over to our trainer. It it took a lot, especially when we got to like the bullpens and like the flat grounds and pitching aspect of things. I was really overcompensating with my legs, you know, trying to put like the least amount of pressure on my arm. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of like the biggest hump to get over, you know, to realize like to trust the PT, trust the surgeon and trust that all the hard work that you did, like you're okay, like you're good. Yeah. So you were also hitting as well throughout this. And you talked about DHing last year. I mean, your numbers, I was looking at this point in the year, it's, it's almost a straight up comparison in terms of your number of bats. You've doubled your number of homers from a year ago in the same number of bats. So obviously you were doing a lot of work in the off season as well. So what do you think has helped you unlock the ridiculous run of power that you've been on so far this season? Definitely just focusing on getting stronger in the gym. You know, being back home, me and my dad would hit probably four or five times a week. Really, honestly, not trying to get too into the mechanical side of things. I'm not a very step-by-step type of swing person. I kind of just go up there and just try to square a ball up. Mm -hmm. Um, If it looks pretty, it looks pretty. If it doesn't, at least I still hit it hard type of deal. 
but yeah, I definitely say like the biggest thing for me kind of getting through to that power was when I was hurt. Um, especially last year I was lifting like four or five times a week. Cause I mean, I couldn't really do anything else. Right. All I was doing was walking up to the plate, you know, 10, 12 times a week mm-hmm. and, you know, running the bases and all that type of stuff. But I just kind of knew like, this is an opportunity to get the most, like the strongest I've ever been. And I think I did that pretty well. So you've been, uh, you've been nicknamed Jack Tani by some in, in Gator Nation, uh, because of Otani, obviously, but there are very few guys that pitch and hit as you get higher and higher. So I guess the question I was thinking of is, do you see yourself more, are you a pitcher who hits or are you a hitter who pitches? Which, which one of those would you say most describes you? That's pretty funny. I always tell people like growing up, I was a hitter who could pitch. Mm-hmm. And then once like the velo started coming my junior, senior year, I became a pitcher who could hit. And that kind of flip-flopped on me and kind of adapted to all that type of stuff. Um, was definitely different, you know, having to focus more on the pitching side of things, knowing like the bat's going to be there. You mm-hmm. just got to work on, you know, command locations and all that type of stuff on the mound. But I'd probably say a pitcher who can hit at this point. <laughs> You're already getting a lot of buzz uh, in the, the draft circles, even though it's for next year. Uh, as more and more scouts start to show up, as you get more and more requests to talk to people like me, uh, hopefully more important people than me, but how do you handle all of that hype and and what are like, what are your plans going forward for making sure that all of that noise doesn't interfere with, with what you're trying to do on the field? I just try to tune it out. I mean, it's just like the baseball rankings, like they change throughout the year. It doesn't matter. Um you know, like it's it's great to get that type of press. Don't get mm-hmm. me wrong; it's it's really cool. You know, seeing you know the hard work kind of pay off. But you know, really not letting that get to my head. You know, taking each game in stride. You know, one game at a time, one AB at a time, one pitch at a time, rather than thinking about the grand scheme of things. So mm-hmm. I feel like if you just focus on the destination, you're not going to really enjoy each little experience. And I think the more you focus on what's kind of important right now all that stuff will fall into place. Hmm. So let's, let's project down the road. You're in the big leagues, right? And you got a chance to take BP at any three stadiums, which would you choose and why? Yankee stadium, just cause of short porch. Okay. Um, I mean, it's BP. It shouldn't be a problem, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, Coors field, just cause I want to see, you know, how much of a difference the altitude makes. Yeah. Um, Honestly, I want to try polo grounds. What what inspires that? Dead center. Try <laughs> <laughs> to see. I mean, just how close I could get. Honestly, I like yeah. I like I like the thought there. I like the thought there. Um, do you have Do you have a tape measure on the furthest ball that you've hit? Just that one in Missouri from last year. Supposed four eighty, but I'm I'm pretty sure that thing went farther than that. So you think you could you could top five hundred, or maybe that you did top five hundred and they just didn't give you credit for it? For sure, yeah. <laughs> All right, so when you're not dreaming about stadiums you can launch balls out of, what do you enjoy doing away from baseball? I got pretty big in hunting lately. I live with Brandon Neely and he's a big hunter. So over the fall, like during our off days and stuff like that, I'd go back to his place, to his hometown, you know, go deer hunting and do um all that fun stuff i also got into duck hunting Hmm. so hoping to take a trip to arkansas next winter but 
being from Tampa, spent a lot of time fishing out on the boat, kind of messing around with that. Me and my dad, that's kind of what we did growing up. So any chance I get, I really just kind of try to go fishing with my dad or go hunting. Hmm. Have you found any good fishing spots in Gainesville or has it been uh, tough to find the place and the time? It's been kind of tough. I mean, I want to try Lake Alice, but... You might uh, you might turn up a gator if you go fishing in Lake Alice. I don't know if you're going <laughs> to like everything you find in there. <laughs> yeah, probably. You, I was uh, in reading more about you. I know one of the reasons you chose UF was also because of the education side of it. Uh, and you're majoring in business. So I'm, I'm curious if you've thought at all about what you would do beyond baseball, projecting that down the road and, and how Florida helps you get there. My dad's a lawyer, kind of... Practicing law would be something that I'd be interested in. Definitely if the whole baseball path or even after baseball, just because, you know, I want to help people. And it's always kind of something that's interesting to me. I'm a big fan of the show Suits. So that also (laughs) kind of contributed to it. Yeah. I've never, no one's ever referenced Suits before on this. This is the first time Suits has been referenced. So this is a a good good day for the USA Network. Good day for the (laughs) USA Network. Um, Final question for you. I know we've talked a lot about the the success you've been having. Uh, and usually what comes with that is more and more people are looking at you. They're targeting you. They're looking at video. You become a bigger part of the scouting report. What are, what are your plans to counter that? Like as, as you get scouted more and more, how do you respond to that to make sure you can still produce the, the way that you have? Honestly, just trust my coaches. You know, we do a great job with like scouting reports on the pitchers that we're going to face for the weekend. You know, the biggest thing that Chuck has been talking to me about is really just seeing the ball up, you know, staying away from those pitches in the dirt, which teams, like, try to go for. So, yeah, really just trusting the coaches, taking your time at the plate, not really crashing or trying to cheat, just kind of sitting back and realizing, you know, where the pitch is at, putting a good swing on it. Well, Jack, listen, we really appreciate your time. We wish you a lot of luck and hope you continue to uh, to tear through the SEC. And uh, Gator Nation appreciates all that you're doing. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to Gator Tales wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to help us continue to grow. Be sure to keep track of all of the orange and blue action by visiting FloridaGators.com, then come back here every Thursday during the athletic season for an all-new episode. Until then, I'm Adam Schick. Thank you so much for tuning in to Gator Tales. Gator Tales.